Welcome to the 13th episode of our podcast series, Baswara Ideas for Malaysia by the Hub Muslim. Hub was founded to champion the voice of youth in nation building to provide a platform for aspiring youth Malaysians to exchange ideas on a variety of topics that contribute to building Malaysia. Hi, my name is Charlotte, a second year philosophy, politics and economics student at King's College London. And I'm Sachi, a first year student studying law at King's College London as well. So today we have a special guest, Janelle, who is currently working with All Women's Action Society, also known as AWAM, as an information and communication founder. So thank you so much for joining us. And in this episode, we're really excited to talk about an important topic, that is women's rights in Malaysia, including the Me Too movement, the current situation, and also future for women in our country. So to start off, Janelle, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and also what you do at AWAM? Hi, thanks very much, Charlotte and Zuchi. So, hi everyone, my name is Janelle Tan Chiai, and I'm the Information and Communications Officer at All Women's Action Society, AWAM. And AWAM is basically an independent feminist non-profit organization in Malaysia that has been fighting for women's rights and specifically gender-based violence for 36 years. So, AWAM was established in 1985, and so GBV, um, in short, for gender-based violence has been AWAM's primary focus areas. So, we primarily work, I would say, say in through three prongs. First one is through our gender-based violence services, which has a name, it's Telnita services, that provide free legal information and counseling services to all gender-based violence survivors regardless of gender. That's the first prong. The second prong basically consists of public education and outreach, whereby AWAM conducts trainings, talks, and awareness-based sort of events and activities with various stakeholders in different quarters of society to enhance public awareness of gender-based violence. So Examples would be domestic violence, you know, appearing on different media outlets as well as talking to communities about it, and especially sexual harassment with, for example, corporates, government agencies, other big international non-governmental organizations, and etc. So that's the second prong of AWAM's area of work. The third prong is basically engagement with the government. So we do engage in policy engagements and advocacy with the government when it comes to legislation. So I will probably talk more about one or two of the, especially one of the legislation that would definitely impact on women's safety in Malaysia, but that's essentially true with regards to policy engagement. So we basically engage with, for example, the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development on the drafting of the legislation. So, you know, we may be invited for consultations on the drafting of a bill, for example. So that's just an example of policy engagements with the government. So yeah, that's pretty much it. All right. So from what you said, it seems like you're deeply concerned with women's rights in Malaysia. And, you know, being part of AWAM, I'm sure you you know quite a lot about the topic of women's rights and also certain movement hashtags that have been trending. So this leads me to my question of what is your opinion of the Me Too movement and also the Not All Men hashtag? So basically, I think the general understanding of the Me Too movement globally, because Me Too started in the US, right? I think that's what most people know about. But I'm not sure if most people actually know that the hashtag Me Too is actually not the origins of the movement. It actually started way back when it was used as a phrase by Tarana Burke, who is a Black feminist. I think she's a Black urban feminist in the US. So she used that phrase in 2006, but back then it didn't really get traction. It only got traction in around 2017 when the US actor Alyssa Milano used it as part of a tweet. So just to quote her tweet, which I remembered because I read about it. So it started off with like, me too, suggested by a friend. If all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote me too as a status, you might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. 
So from what I know, within just 24 hours, at least 12 million Facebook posts using the hashtag was already shared and written. And within 48 hours, this hashtag has been quoted nearly a million times on Twitter. So that's what the general understanding when it comes to the MeToo movement. I would just like to emphasize that there is a very big difference between the phrase MeToo used in 2006 and the MeToo hashtag that's being used in 2017 and onwards. So the difference that I'll be talking about would apply primarily, uh, would also relate a lot to our use of digital platforms. So 2006, it didn't get much traction, but then in 2017, it did get, and that's very much related to, I would say, two things. One is the backdrop of increasing popularity of feminism in mainstream media. So, for example, if you bring up examples like Beyonce had this huge word feminist at her MTV Music Video Award, that's one example. The other example is, of course, Emma Watson's speech at the UN Women He For She campaign launched back in 2014. So, from around 2014, 2015 onwards, feminism has steadily become a very popular, how do I say, an idea or rather a trend in mainstream media. And, and that propagates also on digital platforms. So that I would say is a very significant factor as to why MeToo as a hashtag got picked up so quickly and it spreads globally. The second reason that I would touch on would be that MeToo picked up so much 2017 is because of the platforms that we use. So contrary to 2006, whereby the internet wasn't you know like very much used, but Comparing then and now, everyone goes on social media. Everyone looks at social media posts and they follow one another. So in a way, it's so much more easier to spread, especially spread hashtags or spread messages, especially those that are catchy. So in a very big sense, MeToo hashtag is what I call to be, and I've read this somewhere, it's called networked or discursive feminism. So it's very important to distinguish this from real life on the ground, feminist activism because feminist activism on the ground a lot of the time it tries to engage you know like with regards to cultural and societal change because sexist discrimination against women and girls right it's not so much of the how do I say like the structural inequalities are the result of cultural and societal assumptions biases and stereotypes when it comes to women and girls so that needs to be tackled so underground feminist activism a lot of the time they try to directly engage with those inequalities on the ground for digital or discursive or networked feminism like the me too hashtag movement it tries to deal with this you know like through widespread awareness and widespread support of feminism but then again when it comes to its effect on women's rights i would say that if you were to assume that, you know, just because you use the hashtag MeToo and, and it can actually lead to like, you know, long-term sustainable widespread change, I would say that it's not that simple because anyone can use the hashtag MeToo but does not necessarily truly identify with what feminism is all about. And we must remember that the hashtag MeToo is very dynamic because it's a word, because it's an idea, and because it's propagated on mainstream media, its definitions can be negotiated all the time across different contexts, across different peoples. So if you really want to pinpoint what exactly is Me Too, you have to probably look at the context, you have to probably look at the context, value systems involved, and etc. And then probably use it in concert with on-the-ground feminist activism to effect real sustainable change when it comes to eradicating gender-based violence and holding perpetrators accountable. And when it comes to using the hashtag MeToo, right, 
there is a whole set of limitations that we need to take into account that would impede the fulfillment of women's rights and gender equality. One of which is the societal and cultural biases that may prevent women from speaking up. Because if you look at the Plan International 2020 report when it comes to the online safety young women and girls, right, you will find that they have actually collected data from I think 10 plus thousand young women and girls across different continents. And they have looked at their subjective accounts when it comes to like what they feel, what they think when they are being censored or when they're being harassed online general conclusion is that young women and girls, they are a lot more disadvantaged when it comes to being able to express freely online. So if you take that into account, and if you also take into account the existing characteristics of rape culture that we have, so for example, you know, having certain assumptions about what can quote-unquote cause rape, or certain attitudes that end up victimizing or blaming the victim, but then not bringing the perpetrator to accountability. So even these pre-existing norms, because they still exist, that can itself remain as an impeding factor in allowing more women across different backgrounds to share their experiences and through that channel, hopefully get justice. So basically, with all this, I guess what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to women's rights and gender equality in the context of the Me Too movement, we cannot simply generalize it as it's definitely the solution forward, the only one solution forward to you know, fulfill women's rights and gender equality. You would have to look at the whole set of societal and cultural, contextual stereotypes, characteristics, values that may shape and influence how Me Too is being used up. As for the not all men hashtag, that's another, another complex thing altogether. Not all men hashtag basically the origins is just, I would say in some ways, in only some ways, a rebuttal hashtag or statement used by certain quarters to justify that not all men are abusers or perpetrators. I would say from a feminist standpoint that to use this hashtag may to some extent impede conversations around survivors coming forward to share their experiences about gender-based violence because when you use because remember, going back to the dynamicity of hashtags, right? Not all men can be used against survivors and victims of gender-based violence to silence them, to basically pin the responsibility on you know victims and survivors for not coming forward or for not doing this and doing that. Because not all men can be abused la, to highlight individual responsibility when in actual fact, gender-based violence is pretty much a result of societal gender power relations. It's a societal issue. It's about gender power imbalance between men and women. So when you use non-all men hashtag too haphazardly, it can literally obscure that whole societal structural issue aspect of the whole gender-based violence phenomenon. It may basically impede the whole conversation. So that's basically my opinion. Definitely agree. So women are affected by various cultures, stigmas. This includes the culture formed by the state families and even social groups. How do you think the culture for women have changed over these years, in your opinion? I would say, so before I go to the culture, it's important to acknowledge this because this is something that a lot of the feminist scholars and, you know, like academics and probably people on the ground involved in feminist activism would know. But I'm not sure if it's something that a lot of the general public will understand. So I'd like to emphasize on this message before I move on to culture because I'm not sure if the general public generally knows about this. But in order for sexism and discrimination and oppression against women and girls to truly be eradicated, right? And you will definitely see this in CEDAW. So CEDAW is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. It's an international women's rights framework that is endorsed by many of the countries worldwide, including Malaysia. 
even CEDO emphasizes that to remove those, what I've mentioned, um, i.e. oppression, discrimination, and sexism, you have to address cultural and societal biases and preconceptions, or rather structures, those structures that bring about those inequalities. To truly eradicate sexism, oppression, and discrimination against women and girls, it's important to address the structural inequalities. And to do that, you need to tackle cultural and societal norms. And this is not only emphasized in the various reports that are released by UN agencies that work on women's rights, but also they are also enshrined as a principle, i.e. substantive equality, in CEDAW, which is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. A very recent UNDP report actually published about tackling social norms as a game changer for gender inequalities. And they've noted this trend whereby the world is already at this stage of addressing basic capabilities. So to explain what basic capability means, what I mean is like access to the basic services, so opportunities, so for example, like educational attainment, basic healthcare services. So that is what I would classify to be the basic capabilities. But then we are still a very long way from achieving enhanced capabilities. So enhanced capabilities, basically, in order to reach those capabilities, you need to address existing societal norms. So for example, is allowing women to participate in public office. If you want to allow equal women representation in public office, you need to first address quite a few societal norms. For example, cutting down on the disproportional burden that women are already facing when it comes to care work and domestic work. That's an example of societal norm. The other one is probably existing biases when it comes to women's capabilities in leadership and perceived leader characteristics. For example, women are perceived to be weak, so you know they're not fit to be leaders. That probably is still a very prevalent norm, for example, in countries in Southeast Asia like Myanmar. This trend is also reflected in the Global Gender Gap Report that's being released by the World Economic Forum every year. So even during the pandemic, you can actually see that trend whereby basically economic and political empowerment are still lagging behind. But you find that health and education, for example, they're very, very much very progressive. So probably in the high 90s in percentages in attainment across the world. In light of this, you can already get the general answer that basically pertaining to your question, how do you think the culture for women has changed over these few years? I would probably say that it's still a long way to go because just to take an example, right? Gender-based violence again. Maybe 10, 15 years back, online-related abuse are very, very rare because we hardly use the internet, right? Gender-based violence forms that are more physical in nature are probably more prevalent. Let's say sexual harassment, right? Maybe back then, sexual harassment that involved physical groping or even stalking or repeatedly asking someone out for a date physically face-to-face that will probably be the predominant ones. But then right now, right, the physical ones still exist. It's just that now you have an additional one, which is the online one, whereby the visual, the physical, the the gestural forms manifest also online. And as you would generally know, online forms are more difficult to deal with because you have the anonymity of the perpetrator to, to tackle. Not to mention, um, you have more bystanders, probably either known or even anonymous because everyone... And then with more bystanders involved, either through sharing, commenting, and etc., more people can somehow unintentionally further victimize or further harass the existing survivors, for example. So as you can see, gender-based violence prevalence increases, can increase as well if the physical ones are not decreasing. Culture-wise, when it comes to, for example, rape culture, right? Or rather, attitudes and norms that 
perpetuate certain assumptions about what women can do, how women should behave, these things are still not dying off. And bringing back the online thing, they also manifest online. So it turns out that the general public, social groups, families, individuals are still pretty much having to battle with this whole sexist, misogynist mentality online. That's on one hand. On the other hand, I would say that there are some benefits that, as well that, that can come out of online activism or rather greater online awareness and support of feminism and women's rights and gender equality. Because when more people, when you have the online messages and comments and social media platforms, there are more occasions for solidarity and support and endorsement for people giving the benefit of the doubt for people who actually care about feminism or actually care about women's rights. And with the online boundaryless channels and with the world being more interconnected, if you stir up or if you create a movement or you know like get together and try to champion or try to advocate for a specific issue in a specific country or in a specific region or even in a specific locale if done in the right way or with the right timing you there is potential for change and through online as much as there is the space or as much as there is room for abuse um, then again governments also getting online because they also need support from various quarters right and that's how they engage with various stakeholders so in that way being online is a good form of trying to get different important stakeholders holding them accountable so yes i would say that just to round off all this i would say that current culture current societal and cultural norms there is potential for change it's just just that as we navigate through online and physical worlds, we would have to bear like women and the various stakeholders that are trying to combat and trying to get a uh, fulfill and fight for gender equality. They would have to navigate a whole different set of limitations of affordances that affordances basically mean functions because of the channels to which people communicate and how social media platforms work. So in that way, these functions can influence conversations and these functions can influence how women's rights are being framed and how they are being fought for on the ground or online so different stakeholders have to be mindful of and also navigate through the intersecting the different limitations the different circumstances if they really want to go on about and make a change when it comes to gender equality and women's rights uh. there is one more point i'd like to say so with regards to the current culture right because of the intersecting online and offline interfaces when it comes to women actually advocating for themselves and you know like voicing out themselves about what they believe and what they feel about gender equality and women's rights right on one hand women and girls have the space for liberation but then again going back to existing social norms that may stop them from doing that because of the pre-existing assumptions of what women should wear and how they should behave and of course this depends on the context and you know the religious and cultural and the societal context involved women and girls are still at greater risk of being scrutinized online being criticized for what they say especially if they don't if what they say don't bite by or don't are not aligning with the existing narratives or conversations when it comes to women's rights and gender equality. So as a result, this culture, I would say, has can simultaneously liberate yet silence women and girls at the same time. And one must also remember that offline spaces already marginalize certain women. For example, disabled women, probably in other countries, women of color, and in our case, in Malaysia, definitely orang aslis, not just in the peninsula, but also in East Malaysia, and even to some extent, women from other ethnicity minorities minorities and oh yes in Malaysia even Muslim women so traditionally this has already this marginalization and this additional scrutiny has been going on and this is not any different even when we move online 
I would say the culture has become more complex, but then the simultaneous liberation and silencing is ongoing since the past. It's just that it's manifesting in a more different, in a more complex and a more dynamic form. So yes, that's pretty much my response. That was actually very insightful. So I think completely agree with what you said about how gender-based discrimination has increased because the world is becoming more digitalized. So it is also important to realize that physical and online discrimination is very prominent. You also mentioned how the world is at this stage of, you know, addressing basic capabilities such as educational attainment and healthcare services. But, you know, we are also quite a long way from achieving enhanced capabilities. So this leads us to the next question of what do you see in Malaysia's future for women? I would say it's very difficult to be honest, I'm actually quite new in the women's rights scene. To be frank, I only came to the women's rights scene for probably over this year, since last year. And I only officially delved in, in my current full-time position, like, only this year. What I can predict, la, is I would say not as, probably not as on point as the women's rights defenders and women's rights champions whom I've known through my work, you know, like, this year, because I've interacted with quite a few WAO, from CIS, from AWL, from basically all the different women's rights organizations, la, in the coalitions that all is so they've been fighting for different aspects of women's and girls' rights since I don't know how many years, you know, not just on their behalf, but also on the organization's behalf. At least from what I can get from the sentiments of many, it's been a very long fight. So a literally a very protracted fight. Like you just have to keep going and going and going and just fighting and fighting and fighting. Um, so for example, regards to future for women, right? So one thing that we try our very hardest right now since a few years ago is literally the basic safety of women. We have to domestic violence. Act since 1994 and historically speaking Malaysia was actually the first Southeast Asian country to have passed Domestic Violence Act in 1994. We were progressive in that sense. We've made amendments in domestic violence, I think, twice from 1994 to two to three times, actually, up to, you know, last year or this year. But the thing is, as much as we have domestic violence, we don't have sexual harassment. But then again, sexual harassment in the global conversation has been around for quite a while. I think probably a couple of decades. It was even in the international labor organizations, you know, like agenda. Of course, recently, it was only framed as a specific agenda of its own within the last three to four years. But technically speaking, sexual harassment has been in the global conversation for quite a while and the fact that we've not had even a standalone sexual harassment bill not to mention with current gaps in our legislation in addressing sexual harassment yeah it's a very protracted fight we've been fighting for the anti-sexual harassment bill for almost 30 years so i would say with the pace at which the government is going when it comes to passing passing relatively progressive legislation that would or rather amendments that would better ensure the safety and security and the fulfillment of women's rights in malaysia i would say that is quite curious because anti-sexual harassment bill is one thing and we've been pushing for it like awam has been very very passionately and very steadfastly pushing for it since i think over the last two to three years and we've been very vocal with especially the government about passing it in our awam for the bill campaign last year online on social media and we got very very high engagement and very positive reception from the malaysian public so that's just one and you also have the anti-stalking amendment that is yet to be done the gender equality bill it's somewhere in the works and believe me this is a very important one because with the passing of this gender equality act or gender equality bill right it would more comprehensively cover the definition of discrimination against women because currently right now right in the and by the way also make gender mainstreaming as a more concrete agenda in different agencies like in Malaysia so this is very important because currently right in our legislation yes we have article 8 
that stipulates that discrimination on the basis of race, religion, including gender, is prohibited. But the thing is, there are also loopholes in the legislation that would allow for certain discriminations to occur. So by having a gender equality bill, it would not only to some extent cover for those loopholes, at the same time, it will also affirm Malaysia's commitment towards gender equality. Because if you look at the more progressive countries, right, many of them, for example, UK, they actually have a gender equality legislation of their own. And that is basically evident in after the government recognizes that addressing discrimination and sexism against women must be a separate agenda of its own because this is a crucial issue needs to be addressed. After all, women consist of 50% of the world's population. And if you cannot even address their needs and challenges properly through a separate standalone legislation that would say no towards any form of discrimination, I'm not sure if there's a more effective way la, or a more direct way to really take discrimination by the horns and tackle. La. Aside from the mainstream women and girls' rights that we talk about, there is also, of course, we cannot leave out the other diverse identities, la. so especially the LGBTQ plus rights. So in that sense, that's even more precarious for Malaysia because the government is going back and forth between, if I'm not mistaken now, when it comes to, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, recently in April, right, Putrajaya reportedly said la, to move forward with, with heavier punishments against the Muslim LGBTQ plus community. And as you know, Malaysia's stance when it comes to the LGBTQ plus right has never been favorable. And this can only unnecessarily and unjustly criminalize the LGBTQ plus communities in Malaysia. So when it comes to, you know, addressing intersectional feminism, i.e., you know, the women from the different backgrounds, different types of identities, basically, for example, sexual orientation, race, religion, uh, Malaysia is still quite behind. Lah. As to how the country can improve, I would say we will need generally two things. One is, I don't think we can avoid legislative change because in Malaysia's case, it's very important to have this overarching framework that can at least provide some basis for cultivating an environment that would progress towards, you know, like tackling a certain gender unequal norm to basically move towards better women's rights or gender equality. So legislative change is very important. I would say the second thing that needs to work in tandem, by the way, not separately, work in tandem with legislative change is public attitude shifts. Because, okay, maybe certain things may take a lot longer to change. For example, like LGBTQ plus elements because of, you know, like the nature of our government and with religion as a very important factor to consider, that may take a lot more time. That's true. But then at the same time, the relationship between the government and the public can be quite reciprocal, can be quite mutual. So what I mean by that is that the rakyat to some extent can influence the government to do something. So if public attitude across, uh, and I don't just mean like in one or two groups, I mean literally like blanket across Malaysia. Uh, if public sentiments are positive or are those that support specific women's rights agenda, for example, in this case, the easiest one to bring up will be sexual harassment. If the general public uh, across all quarters, okay, like MPs, religious bodies, normal individuals, influential NGO, hate, educational institution, authorities, if everyone shares that universal support for certain women's rights or for gender equality, I would say it can play a significant role when it comes to making an environment safer and more equal for women because after all, as much as the government is the government, feminism and gender equality cannot come about if you don't have universal endorsement or support. And for societal and cultural norms to change, you will need the masses to be with you on this. And that means starting from as simple as your immediate environment, like your home, your friendship and family networks. It can be as simple as, for example, a friend of yours or a family member of yours came up with a comment 
comment, you know, like a sexist or misogynist comment about gender-based violence, for instance, and then someone within your network literally just came out with a comment, oh, she deserves it because after all, she went out walking at night wearing certain pieces of clothing. Even if you try to tackle that at such a small scale, right, if everyone does it, eventually zero tolerance towards elements of rape culture such as this may eventually shift towards more progressive and gender equal norms and practices. So that's why, in short, I would say for the country to improve towards making a safer and more equal environment for women, legislative change and universal public shifts in attitudes and norms related to gender equality and women must occur. So yes. Yeah, I definitely agree. With that said, Janelle, do you have any final remark that you would like to say on this topic? I would say you don't need to start big. You can start from small. As long as you make your own change, that's already more than enough. The simplest thing that anyone can do would be to tell friends and family around you about the current women's rights issues and gender equality issues and share with them about what's right, what gender equality is about. And by doing this, you may actually be discriminating against this person, that person, or whether you're actually perpetuating discrimination or whether you're actually doing your part in bringing about gender equality. Even doing your small part is really a very significant thing be part of the gender equality movement because this is I'm not saying this from just a purely right-based perspective as much as I care about women's rights as much as I really care and identify women's rights at the same time it's very important to bring about gender equality because when everyone is at an equal standing better quality of life better economic better social development automatically ensue when gender equality is achieved this marks the end of our podcast. Thank you, Janil, for joining us. It has been Thank very, you. very insightful. And we hope everyone stays safe and healthy. See you soon. Hub Movement, aiming to build a better Malaysia. Follow MLUK as well as the Hub Movement on Facebook right now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to leave a like and follow us on Anchor as well as Spotify. We release a monthly update with tons of interesting new topics. So stay tuned. See you on our next episode.